You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there, and welcome to season two of the Protecting Your Practice podcast. This season, Dan and I are interviewing mental health practitioners who are talking about challenges they've experienced in their work. And we've been interviewing guests, and in the process of doing so, we decided that we too should do a few episodes on challenges that we've experienced in our work. We've been recording these episodes after already starting our guest interviews. So if some of the content sounds a little bit out of order, That's why, because Dan and I decided that we should interview one another after already recording with our guests. So today I'm going to be interviewing my Protecting Your Practice co-host, Dan Mayer, who you know is the principal attorney at Mayor Law in Baltimore, Maryland. For those of you who don't know, Baltimore is frequently referred to as Smaltimore. As a city, there are over 600,000 people in Baltimore, and yet there is still a small town feel where people feel that they're often running into people they know, or they find out that they have some kind of a mutual connection to somebody else. Yeah. So anyone listening who is in Maryland or Baltimore understands what Melissa's talking about. I thought I would just give you a funny anecdote of what we, why we talk about small tomorrow and what that means. An example that happened to me personally, and just it happened about three weeks ago. And, you know, we, my wife and I decided we are going to look at, um, uh, possibly renovating our our house, and um, so we had a contractor come out, and her cousin, who you know knows a good bit about uh, home renovation things like that, works in the real estate industry, was also there just to kind of help walk through with us. And she saw his name, and she said, "He's your father, so and so." He goes, "Yes, it is." And lo and behold, it turns out that his father was her ex husband's best friend from high school and um, that in fact, she was actually at his wedding of all things, go figure. And um, that uh, there's some other connections to the family as well. And I'm not from Baltimore. And I was just like, are you kidding me? I'm like, this is exactly what drives me crazy about Baltimore. I love it. There's no other place like it. Never lived anywhere else like Baltimore, but this type of thing happens all the time. So when Melissa is talking about that's the kind of relationship where Everyone knows somebody that you know. It's really like that. So as an attorney in this area, working in the mental health sphere, you know, I always talk about concentric circles. So, you know, in Jewish Baltimore, there's one circle. In the mental health world of Baltimore, that's another circle. In the lawyer's uh, world in Baltimore, that's another circle. And in those circles, you know, for as many people as you there may be, it's this small town feel. Everybody knows everybody. So when I'm doing work as a lawyer in a mental health industry, (laughs) It's a very small circle of people, even if it's like 500,000 you know, people or, or whatever it is. Um, and so one of the things that comes up a lot for us um, is the topic of conflicts of interest as an attorney. For me, Melissa and I doing these, like, these couple episodes is really interesting because it's, um, we're basically turning the tables on ourselves, putting ourselves in the hot seat. So where we're focusing now is on um, conflicts of interest. And much like practitioners, lawyers have rules regarding conflict of interest and how we handle this. And that's essentially what we'll talk about today. Yeah. So conflicts of interest can happen anywhere, regardless of where you live. But if you live in a rural community or maybe a place that's like 
Maltimore, um, you may find these things come up more often than you would expect. So today I am taking on the hat of the person who's going to be interviewing Dan, and he's going to be answering some questions for us. So Dan, in your work as an attorney who specializes in working with mental health practitioners, what kinds of conflicts of interest do you find coming up? So uh, one thing I think is important to, to kind of explain to everyone listening, and since I presume that most people listening are not attorneys, um, they are practitioners, I think it'd be a little good, a little useful to have some background. In Maryland, Rule 1.7 of the Attorney Ethical Code um, essentially says that an attorney shall not represent a client if the representation involves a conflict of interest. A conflict of interest is defined as the representation of one client uh, where it will be directly adverse to another client, or there is a significant risk that the representation of one or more clients will be materially limited by the attorney's responsibilities to the other client, a former client, or a third person by a personal interest of the attorney. So if I have a situation where I have one client who's current or former, and I have a new client who walks in my door, and I quickly realize that they may have interests that are adverse to my current or former client that I already do or have worked with, even if it's actual, like it's like this is a direct conflict or the potential for it, that's where the, the rules of, of attorney-client um, conflict just kick in. So we have to be very careful. We have an internal process that we use to, you know, anytime anybody new comes into our office looking just to talk to us, they basically get run through our conflict interest database. And that kind of spits out information for us that tells us, you know, who they are and are they connected to anyone that we currently have or have been involved with. So that's kind of how we, how it may come up. And that's the process by which can then launch that kind of, that kind of investigation, kind of, you know, survey to see what's going on. Yeah. So tell us about some of the steps that you include in your intake process to prevent mm -hmm. conflicts of interest or to identify them, right? As opposed to, hey, my friend Jen recommended mm -hmm. that I talk to you, or she said, you're really great. How do you identify, you know, we know we mm -hmm. have a mutual person in common, but it's not a conflict of interest versus recognizing when there is in fact a conflict of interest. So for most practitioners, they probably find that it's useful to collect certain information from a client before you ever even have um, kind of a consultation with them, whether it's the initial one or, you know, ones down the road, because that gives you some background of what's going on. And, you know, are there any current medical uh, uh, conditions presenting? You know, is there a family of mental illness, things like that? It gives you some information to help you gauge what's happening and whether or not you can assist this client or not. Well, we do the same thing. Uh, we have an uh, initial consultation form. Uh, for those who are listening who do know me personally or have worked with us, you know that we have that form. If you go on our website, you'll see our, that form. We have a link to that form. Um, and what that does is it allows us to collect certain information. Okay. We then take that information along with just the general personal information database, you know, demographic information that's being provided. And we are able to kind of plug that into, you know, um, uh, some uh, document the system we have essentially, and that compares the information that's being given us to information we already have. So if I have a client come in, a prospective client come in and says, you know, I used to work for X practice, right? You know, I can then put that name of that X practice in, 
right? Or I could put the former supervisor that they did super, you know, who supervised their work or, you know, whatever it is in. And that's going to tell me right away, is this a practice we currently represent? Was it a practice we represented in the past? What's the situation? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how we, we use that information to help us figure that out. We are required to do that. We are actually required as part of our ethics. We're required part of my, um, my own liability to uh, coverage. Um, requires us to have some sort of conflict system in place. Um, and I think actually, just so practitioners know, if an attorney is not doing that, it's really risky. That's like not doing your initial you know, documentation when you first bring on a client into your practice. Like you'd never do that. You want to make sure they have their informed consent. You want to make sure they've signed all the right forms. This for attorneys is one of those steps that we must do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if this has happened before, but I'm just going to put it out there in case it has. What steps do you take when you've started working with a client and then you later discover that there's a conflict of interest? Maybe you didn't know that it existed. Your usual process didn't pick Mm -hmm. it up. But maybe in the middle of your work with someone, you realize that, oh, man. So I like to think, and I'm knocking on wood here because I don't want to jinx this. I like to think that, and and I've come to believe, that the systems we have in place are pretty good at determining that before we ever start working with a client actuality, in actuality. And it doesn't mean it won't happen or can't happen, but we, I have found that generally through the intake process and the initial consultation, that's when we can, this can come up. I have been in initial consultations with clients where I'm sitting there, I'm like, this sounds very familiar. Like, why does this, what this person is telling me seem to remind me like something like deja vu or like, you know, that name, someone will mention a name or maybe the practitioner themselves will give them, give their name. And I'm like, yeah, it looks familiar. And I I guarantee like 99% of the time we run that through or, or if we've already done the check, the conference check, I go and look to see what was the result. Like, it'll tell you, bing, oh yeah, this person was somebody who actually was adversarial to a client that you're working with right now right? That's why the scenario sounds familiar. Or, um, hey, this is a situation where a while back, some stuff came up, you know, this person no longer works with a practice, but that practice is currently, you know, a client. And, you know, maybe things didn't go well when the person left. I don't, you know, whatever it is. So typically I find that we, that information comes up and we are able to figure that out before we get into process. However, when or if it happens, that's really serious. And that's one of those things where it's like, you know, Monopoly board, you know, do not pass go, do not collect 200. Everything freezes immediately. Nothing happens until that conflict is addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, that has happened once or twice. And essentially what happens, we have to then do a review. Is this a conflict that can be resolved? If it's not, then is this a situation where we can continue to represent one of the clients or do we have to you know, discharge or do we have to kind of end the representation of both clients? Why that matters is that if I'm meeting with or I'm working with someone and there's a conflict that I'm unaware of and all of a sudden it becomes apparent, well, meanwhile, the person I'm working with has told me information that now I have. There's material adverse to a client I'm only representing. I can't tell that new other client this information, but I have it. Mm-hmm. So no matter what, I have this information now. And that's a big problem. That's what we don't want to have happen. That's what the conflicts process we have is designed to do is so we don't have to end up there. But if it happens, that evaluation has to happen. You know, have I now entered a situation where now I can't represent both clients? 
mm-hmm. I'm basically what we call conflicted out because I have information that's you know harmful to one that the other has told me a confidence, right? Mm-hmm. It could also be vice versa. If I'm working with a current client and they tell me something and all of a sudden I'm like, that name sounds familiar. And I'm like, who is that? I'm like, oh, right. That's the client we hired like last month. And all of a sudden I realized that, oh, there's like severe issue here. That's a really big deal. It has to be resolved or I'm going to have to discharge one or both of the clients. Because of the seriousness of that, as you can imagine, for those listening, you know, if a client's come to you and said, come to me and said, hey, I need your help with something. And I'm in the middle of helping them. And all of a sudden I turn around and say, yep, you know what? Sorry, can't help you any further. You got to go. I got to let you go. I can get you a referral to someone else. That's really disruptive. It's really potentially harmful to their their case. You know, of course, we want to mitigate that harm. We want to make sure we get them to an attorney that can resolve it, you know, and help them. And that's the goal, right? Much mm-hmm. with a client, when you discharge them from therapy, to get them to a different practitioner, right? It's the same thing, right? The goal is to get them to somewhere or someone who can then help them because you can't. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think for attorneys, the danger zone is not recognizing when those things come up and not handling them when they do. As long as you handle it as an attorney and you explain, you have a legitimate conversation with the client about what's happening and why you have to take certain steps. I've yet to find a client be unreasonable about it because since a lot of the clients we work with are practitioners, practitioners are very well-informed about conflicts and the seriousness of them. And so that's something that I found that in the few times, the very few times where we've had to take drastic action, a practitioner has been like, yeah, I get it. Okay, no problem. I'm not angry about it. I understand why you're doing it. I appreciate you being upfront and ethical with us, mm-hmm. right? And not just not doing anything about it. But the goal is really to avoid that. And it's a lot easier conversation to have with someone before you begin to say, look, I can't disclose to you what's happening, but I can only tell you that, and I've had this conversation, I can't disclose to you what's happening, but I can only tell you that I have certain information about someone else or another practice, or I'm involved in another practice. You know, I can't go into details, but I can just tell you that my review is that I cannot take you on as a client because that would put me in a situation where I'm potentially not, you know, protecting your interests. Because I may have, have information that's adverse to you. You really need to get legal counsel, right? That's why you came to me. You need legal counsel. So I need you to get you to someone who can handle your legal counsel for you, right? Other than me. I've also had situations come where, and I think this is really why it's so important as an attorney, really anyone in whatever field you're in, but as an attorney for me, to have the connections I have. Is that a client may come to me for help and I'm like, I can't take you on, but I'm going to get you to someone who can step in and help. Mm-hmm. because that way I know you're getting the help you need, right? And I'm still protecting your interests and my current client's interests. And that's usually the way I describe it, prospective clients is, this is not punitive. I'm not trying to do this because I don't want to work with you. It's actually because I'm trying to protect your interests. You have certain interests, you have certain you know, needs, and I can't fulfill those. And that's not fair to you. Right. So that leads me to my other question that I had is how do you handle communicating that you can work with someone due to a conflict mm-hmm. of interest without divulging mm-hmm. another client's information? Yeah, that's a really good question. And that's where you have to be really careful. Um, and like I said, I've had this conversation and I is, you know, my rule of thumb, at least in my practice is that the general policy, I'm just going to say as a, as a rule, is we don't even look to, unless you know, very specific circumstances are present, we don't even look to try to resolve the conflict because 
if there's an actual or potential down the road, that means that even if it never happens, the potential is there for it to happen. And I just don't, we just don't want to go down that road. Like it's not fair to you as a client. So we are very careful to say, you know what, we're going to err on the side of caution and maybe we could resolve this, but you know what, to be safe, like we're just going to send you to a different attorney because this is not even a, a place we want to mess around with. And that's true for practitioners, obviously as well, right? This is one of those rules for practitioners that you can't mess with. You really, when it comes to ethical rules, you do not mess with them, in my opinion, as an attorney or as a mental health practitioner. And that's one of the reasons we do that. So that conversation has to be handled very carefully. And generally, I will go to the person of the practice and I'll say, look, I can't discuss what's happening or why, but I can just tell you that we've done an internal evaluation. And I, you know, in keeping with the rules of my profession, my ethical, they require me to take certain actions if I think there's a situation that could arise where a conflict of interest could, could be present. And because I do think that's the case here, right, and I do have, you know, there's something else that I'm involved with or was involved with, that's precluding me from being on the move forward with you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I can get you to a different attorney. You know, if you have a number of, of attorneys you're looking at, that's fine. You can go to them. If you want a re- referral, I can try to get you a referral. Sometimes, very rarely, sometimes I, I may be a situation where I can say it's regarding this specific circumstance you came to me about. So if it's something else down the line that's not involving this, I might be able to still be able to help you, you know, but contact me at that point and we can see what we can do. I'll leave the door open that way, but generally I'll make it, you know, I'll put it, I'll, I'll be pretty firm about it. I'm not, that's not something I'm using flex. I've had a couple of situations where clients were like, well, can't you do this? Can't I'm like, no, sorry, I'm not willing to, to work. There's no work around here because the consequences for them as a client and their interest in protecting their interest as a client is so sacramount, you know, and there's certainly rules do that. And, and I think the Maryland bar makes that clear too, that we as attorneys have a duty to do that. So even if someone never becomes my client, my duty is to make sure their interests are being taken care of. Mm-hmm. And that means me telling them I can't help them. Then that's what I have to do. So this is my anxious brain kicking in here. But when you're delivering that information, is there anyone who's ever alarmed, right? For example, someone comes in because, I don't know, maybe they're like, Dan, this person reported me to the board. Dan, this person, I don't know, like we had a disagreement. We had something come up and I want legal representation. Mm -hmm. Um, They tell you the situation and then you're like, "Mm, I can't represent you. Is anyone ever alarmed by that? Right. Because, you know, sometimes when we don't have information, it, you know, you can't share certain information, but sometimes when we don't have information, our brains go to really yeah. creative places. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you've ever had anyone be alarmed, like, oh my goodness, what does this mean? I'm seeking legal counsel. And now he's telling me he can't help me because of a conflict of interest. I, I could envision that that would, that kind of feelings would arise. Honestly, has not come up that often. I'm actually maybe surprised it hasn't. That question hasn't been asked more. But to your point, I do think that's a that's a fairly human human response, you know, normal human response to be like, well, what are you dealing with it? Like you can't help me, right? And that's where again it comes to the same policy regarding confidentiality that practitioners have regarding clients. We have regarding our clients. Like I literally cannot say, tell you. There's nothing I can do to give you any information other than what I've just told you. And I and that I've had that literal talking point where I've been like with someone where I was like, I cannot go into details. There's nothing I can say to you right now to tell you what's going on or why. You know, I 
Because the minute I open that door, I'm now giving information regarding to the identity or the situation involving the party we do represent, right? Mm -hmm. And in fact, I don't even acknowledge that I'm representing a party. That's not even a door that I actually open. I try not to, right? Sometimes it's kind of a situation like clearly you're representing someone that's in, right? You know, people aren't stupid, right? They, they, can, they can pick up on the fact that clearly there's something else in the background here, but we don't, like I leave it at, the rules are what they are. My conflict checks has shown me that I have a conflict and there's nothing more I can say other than I cannot represent you. You know, and I do apologize and I, I apologize, you know, of course. It's a lot more challenging. That conversation is challenging, as you might imagine. And it is a lot more challenging when we get to the initial consultation or post initial consultation. Mm -hmm. And I have to have that conversation than if like I'm going through the intake and, you know, one of my staff says to me, so we got the conflict, but, you know, we went through the conflict process and here's the information we came back. What do you want to do with it? Right. And that's usually what happens is my staff will come to me and say, we've run the names through the, through the process. Here's what came back. What do we do? And at that point, I can make an informed decision. Sometimes, very rarely, I might ask for clarifying questions from the party seeking representation. I might like say like, so on your intake form, you have this or this information. Can you tell me a little bit more information? And I don't go into details. You know, I don't not try to tip my hand or, or act like I'm trying to trick people here. It's not. But, you know, I ask those questions because I may need to find more information out before I can make a decision. The rare circumstances where we can resolve a conflict and the rules that talk about this is where both parties are willing, have been informed, much like in the, in the mental health world, they are informed consent, right? Written informed consent is given. And that is where the, the parties say, you haven't discussed us with us what the conflict that exists or potentially exists is. We both agree that we do not care. Like that is not an issue. We want to have you handle this for us. And we are willing to sign in writing that we are waiving you know, the conflict of interest. And can you give an example of that? Sure. So that can come up with someone who worked at a practice in the past. Now we represent one practice and now this person's a former employee and they come to us and say, Hey, you know, I work or work currently for this, for this other practice and I want to start my own practice. Okay. So in that case, there are times where we might say, yeah, okay, that's a potential conflict because if you're a current employee of this or current contractor and you have a contract dispute or you have a legal dispute, and you now with that practice and we represent you and we represent that practice, I'm representing both sides now, right? That's a huge problem, right? That is, an, that is a big deal, big, big, big problem. We don't want that to happen. So if I look at the situation and figure, okay, that's not going to happen. There's not potential for that happening, right? If the person's left the practice, they're doing their own practice. There's no issue. There's no, right? Not, nothing's come up like they're off doing their own thing over here to the right. And this practice over there doing their thing to the left. Right. Maybe then, you know, maybe then if, you know, it's a situation of we then do, do a question of does a conflict waiver need to be signed? And if so, then sure. Can it can it be signed? Right. That's a very that's why I mentioned earlier. That's a very specific circumstance that rarely happens. Yeah. So I'm thinking about maybe similar things that can come up for therapists. Right. So. A lot of you might know that I do individual work with adults. I don't see couples. I don't see families. Not my area. But, you know, I will see information from people who do work with families, for example, or um, let's say sibling groups. There's some people who 
work with families or children and they might say, absolutely not. I would never work, provide individual therapy to two siblings. And there are other people at other practices who might say, yes, I would. Right. Some people would say, no, I wouldn't. That's a conflict of interest. Other people say, no, that's the model I've been trained under or whatever. Um, And I'm wondering. So what I'm saying is there are therapists who make a decision for themselves about I will do that Mm -hmm. because whatever or I won't do that. And I'm wondering for you and Mm -hmm. maybe you can speak for what you see from other attorneys when that situation or that possibility arises Mm -hmm. that maybe both of your potential clients, potential clients agree, we don't care. Is there a stance that you and other attorneys tend to take? Is that like, okay, if you don't care, we don't care. Or is it like, eh, a lot of us still feel a little weird about it. For me, the evaluation is going to come down to sort of like, and I don't mean to have this sound the wrong way, but sort of like I have a, I have a, I have a child, a young child, right? I'll have a discussion with him and he'll say, I want cookies for dinner. And I'm like, you can't have cookies for dinner. Like you've had a stomach ache for the last two days, right? I need you to eat something healthy. Well, I don't care. I really want to have cookies. As a parent, I have to make a decision for his best interest. Even if he's like adamant, like, dad, it's okay. I will put up with stomach cramps. I want cookies, right? As a parent, my job is to say, nope. Like my best interest is to look for your best interest. There are times where with a prospective client or client, they may say, we are willing to waive it. And an attorney, in my opinion, has to know or has to be able to determine, is that true? Or are even if the fact that you're willing to waive it, is you, in your opinion as an attorney, in a situation where, you know what, your best interest is not to waive this. Even if you want to, the best interest for what you need for your interests are that you do not, this should not be a situation where I'm representing you. And I think that's where attorneys can get in trouble is because you know, it's money, it's greed, right? Oh, well, you know, this is an opportunity for me to make money and work with both clients. So let's just do it. You know, and that, in my opinion, is the problem. That's the issue. And I think that's where you have to be. And that's why I'm explicitly conservative. I'm, I'm probably more conservative about this than other people, you know, maybe other attorneys, other, other fields. It's one of those things where I have to be, we have to be convinced, I have to be convinced that, that if this conflict is waived, that the likelihood of there being a conflict actual or possible is so little that it, uh, you know, it really comes down to what we were talking about at the beginning. Like it's small to more. So everyone knows everybody. Okay. That's not, there's nothing you can do about that. Right. So that's where I'm going to look is even if the person is willing to waive it. And then, yeah, I guess that's sort of like the B, right? A is, are they willing to waive it? Yes. Okay. B is, you know, can they waive it? Like, even if they think they can, in my mind, is it actually likely that they can? Even if they want to, do I think it's a good idea for them to do it? And at that point, and that's one of the things I press when I have this conversation with people, I press upon them. I'm like, you have to understand, I'm not coming from this because I don't like you or because I don't want to work with you. I'm coming from like, you know what? If I'm really looking out for your interests, you should not be working with me as your attorney. You need to have separate counsel who can tell you advice. You can tell things too. And if there's action needs to help, they can help you. And they aren't going to be hindered by the fact that if they're helping you, they're actually then hurting their other client. Right. So, and what I'm hearing is that at the end of the day, it's a case by case basis and still using your own discretion. 100%. 100%. It's always going to be a case. There is no one size fits all when it comes to this area. 
I don't think there's that's I think it's very rare that that is true in any way. But in conflicts, in my opinion, as an attorney, it is always a case by case basis, even if the outcome is largely the same. Right? Even if the outcome is more often than not, we're going to decline representation. It's still a process that each client has to go through. That we put them through, you know, again, the best, you know, the process needs to work in such a way. And we do it this way that there's no unless there's an issue that comes up, clients never know. Right. Mm-hmm. There's no, you know, we when someone submits an intake form to us, we also have them complete a conflict of interest form. You know, if there's no interest, no issue, that's the last they ever hear about it. Mm-hmm. Right. It goes in their file and it's just that's it. Right. And our goal is to make this as unobtrusive a thing as possible to a client. Right. Mm-hmm. So you submit this form and you never hear anything back. It's because we've run it through and there's no issue that's come up. Mm-hmm. Right. It's only when we think that there is something that's potential or actual that we then say, okay, we got to bring this to the client now and talk to them about it because, mm-hmm. and, and explain them what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, at that point, as we're making that, dis- we're having that discussion, that's where we can make a determination usually if, is it waivable? And is it a good idea to be waived, even if both parties want to have it? Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, another area that comes up in is, um, it's not just practices. You know, when I do some work with uh, families, individuals who are facing psychiatric emergencies. So, you know, I'll typically what will happen is a family or family member will reach out to us and say, hey, we have a situation where a family member is facing a psychiatric emergency. You know, there's something going on, you know, and we need your help to guide us, advise us, whatever it is. Well, typically, if the person in danger or the person who's facing the psychiatric emergency is not, you know, competent. They're not, you know, they're in a position where they're not able to understand what's happening. You know, if they've had a psychotic break, if they've gone off their meds, if something else is happening, you know, if they're heavily under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and they're not able to make rational decisions about things, it's going to be next to impossible to have a conversation. It's not even, you know, um, ethical to have a conversation about hiring an attorney. Mm-hmm. So the families will say, okay, well, great. We'll hire you to help advise us. Okay, we can do that. The problem is that down the road, that person needs help. And so the family is trying to get them to help and they want you to do things to help that client or that, sorry, that, that family member, right? You know, let's say, hey, can you help us get them into a facility to get psychiatric treatment? Sure. When I go to talk to the psychiatric facility, though, they're going to say, who are you? You're not a family member. You're not related, right? Are you his attorney? No, I'm not. I'm the family attorney of the family. Okay, well, you have no business. Or we have, we're not discussing anything with you. You have no business here, right? It's very hard to get to, to act on this person who's not your client's behalf. It's not even ethical, in my opinion. So then the question comes, okay, great, no problem. Well, let's have him hire or her hire you as their attorney. And then we can resolve that, right? And the answer is no. Because now I have a situation where the family has hired me and now an individual might be you know, saying, okay, great. Yeah, I do need an attorney. Let me hire you. Well, their interests and the family's interests might not be the same. Mm-hmm. And what they want to do may not be what the family wants to do, right? Or they may tell me information that is adverse to the interests or harmful to the family's interests, right? Or and vice versa, Right. And now I'm, again, I'm in that position where I have dual information that's conflicting and it's a bad situation to be in. So generally what we, my general policy is that I will not represent a family and an individual. 
the family wants to hire me, you hire me, and then we get you legal, separate legal counsel for the for the client, the sorry, the individual person. Or alternatively, if it's possible, we have the individual person hire us, and then they agree and sign things to it, saying, "I'm going to allow you to consult with my family and let them know and keep them know updated and work on my behalf and be filling them in, and they can answer you can answer their questions, and they are allowed to be privy to what we talk about, right? And all that has to be signed and in writing and all that, right? Then in that case, then that conflict doesn't arise because I'm actually the attorney for the client, for the, for the individual. When it sounds like two issues at hand, also ones that mental health practitioners face, which is who is my client, Correct. right? Is my client the individual facing the psychiatric emergency or um, is the client the family, right? right. And help yeah. for that individual. So it sounds like those two things, determining who is my client and also preventing conflicts of interest, keeping those two mm-hmm. things in mind. Yeah, it has to be very clear. And this is true for practices too. Mm-hmm. You know, an example of where this comes up in practices is I'll be working with a practice and they'll say, great, we have a contractor with a legal issue. You know, can you help them out? Nope, because they don't work for the practice. They're not employee of the practice. We mm-hmm. are the attorney mm-hmm. for the practice. We are not the employee for this contractor who is a separate business contractor. An employee of a business is different because the employee is a direct employee of the business. So in my opinion, that employee can consult potentially with legal counsel for the practice. Sure. You know, if there's a mandated reporting case, right? But it's that sort of that same that same situation mm-hmm. arises. You have to be very clear about who the client is. Mm-hmm. And all parties have to be very clear about who is the client. There mm-hmm. cannot be any, any, any ambiguity here. And if there is ambiguity, it is your duty as an attorney to resolve that ambiguity mm-hmm. and one way or another. Right. Even if it's like, I can't represent you. Sorry. Like, I got to let you go. I got to send you on your way. Yeah. Well, Dan, since there are a lot of people who are probably wondering, hey, um, I should probably have an attorney for my work as a mental health practitioner or maybe even for my practice. You are only working, I believe, in two states, but I want to give wrong information. If people want to find you, how can they do that? So this question comes up a fair amount, actually. So I will have people from other states and jurisdictions contact me and say, can you help me? You know, why am I am barred in Maryland? I'm and, and honestly, mayor laws really focuses on with Maryland practitioners and Maryland clients. So and we actually do say this on our website. But what I would say is that, you know, we certainly if someone I always say to practitioners, if you are looking for legal counsel um, and you need me to you know, I'm a member of a number of different attorney groups, you know, you need me to kind of, you know, ask for a referral. You see if there's someone in your state I can refer you to, I'm happy to, you know, I always have a list of guidelines that, and I think it's actually something we want to, we're going to want to put on our our website this summer. We're going to do is put some guidelines on how do you find an attorney, you know, in your jurisdiction? What are some, what are some things that you can look at? You know, they include contacting your local bar association, asking your friends and family, your referral, your own referral network, who would they refer you to? But anyway, but if you are in Maryland, you know, if it's really a question about federal law, such as the No Surprises Act, you're welcome to reach out to us, you know, and 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 set up a consultation. Everyone is always welcome to submit us questions. You go on our website and just submit a question. There's a little area you can just type a question and submit feedback to us. You can do that too. Um, and you can find us at www.danielmayorlaw.com. All right. Great. So we are going to wrap it up today. How are you feeling, Dan? Uh, we always check in with Good. our guests so, at the end to see how they're feeling, but you're in the hot seat today. <laughs> I am in the hot seat. So I get, do I get to switch out of the hot seat now and do my closing that I normally sure. do? 
So I'm going to switch out of the hot seat now and go back into the role of host and say thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We appreciate you coming and listening. Um, I hope this was informative, as it was interesting for me to be in the hot seat. And in the future, we're going to be having Melissa also in vice versa in the hot seat. So stay tuned for that. But thank you again for listening. As always, you can reach out to us on our website, uh, protectingyourpractice.com. You can also reach out to us through Facebook. And as a reminder, as I've now said on a number of episodes, we are looking for practitioners like you to come sit where I sat today in the hot seat. Uh, I promise you, we will not you know, ask you, you know, hard questions so much as we just want to find out what experience you've had. What is an obstacle that you've had to overcome? And we want to have you tell us about it. So if you think that's something you have, you went through something that you would be useful for people to hear about, please go through our website. Um, just fill out a quick form and we'll be in touch to, to see if we can have you on our show. That's it. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.